We are here uh, this morning kind of on a, in an interesting situation, uh, hitting John. I don't know how many of you have heard about what's gone on in Orlando and things like that that have happened over there and uh, with the 50 people who were killed in that nightclub. And if that's news to you, you'll find out eventually by the end of the day. Um, and, but I, I feel like what we're going to be talking about is really a good connecting point with all of the craziness that's going on in our country, in the world in general. And I don't think we should be shocked or surprised as we dive into some of these pieces primarily because of what we're going to learn about today. Um, for me, to be quite honest, um, I start, I was, I'm starting off with just the whole conversation, the reality uh, of the fact that I'm a skeptic. And, and when it comes to all kinds of events, all kinds of things, I'm a fairly skeptical person. Any other fellow skeptics in the room with me? Okay, uh, you're, you're as evil and skeptical as I am. You go to Harvest Crusades, watch people go down on the field, and you think, they just want to be on the grass. That's, that's how bad I am. And I'm, I'm, I'm repenting as I speak. And, and just the reality is that there are times that I've talked to people and they're like, hey, during worship, I see people extending arms and things. And I think they're just getting attention. We're skeptics. That's how this works. Some of us are literally, you hear about a miracle presented on, up on stage or in somebody's life and you're like, Really? What really happened? I really want to know, was it the medicine? Was it the this? Was it that? Did God really come through? We're skeptical. And I think we're in, semi -good, in a semi-good camp because what I want to talk about today is, is the interesting reality that Jesus actually shows some pretty interesting skepticism when it comes to a particular topic. In fact, as we open up back to John, we're going to meet Jesus in this scenario. And it's, it's almost dripping with his skepticism very clearly about how he views this particular thing. And so if you will, we're going to look at this in John chapter 2. We're going to dive in and kind of examine the conversation, the, the, what, the John, what John's teaching us about what Jesus is skeptical about. So grab your Bible, John chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. If you don't have a Bible, they're available under the seats and you can take a look at that and join us there on page 887. And so John chapter 2 really should be the beginning. This verse should be the beginning of, of chapter 3, but it, it isn't because of it's kind of a transitional context. Last week, um, Tim uh, walked us through a conversation of Jesus getting really ticked off, entering into the temple, making this whip and casting out all the, all the people in there, pushing them away, getting the animals out, throwing over the tables and scattering the money everywhere. And you can see Jesus is livid and upset that people have turned his father's house a place that's supposed to be for prayer and worship into this place that honestly makes a buck off of other people's worship. You know, they were gouging people to take their particular sacrifices and paying for those and exchanging at exorbitant rates, money, and these things. So just take Jesus off. So he goes in and he does this whole thing. Well, this is Passover time, and Passover is a packed time period. You've got the, the entirety of Jerusalem would swell upwards to a million plus people in this small ancient city. And as it would swell with this immensity of people, you would walk down the streets and you couldn't go too far. Everybody had animals and sacrifices and lambs and you're buying stuff because you're prepped for that big meal that it was going to happen where you celebrated the birth of Israel and the, what Moses did by bringing the people out and through the, the Lord doing it through Moses. And it's this huge celebration. In the middle of this, Jesus has just cleansed this temple. And so there's a bunch of people who are really magnetized to Jesus. They're like, who is this guy? That he'd be this gutsy. What's going on here? And as they gathered around him, they started connecting in with Jesus. They start listening to what he's saying. And suddenly he starts doing some things. We're not quite sure what it was. 
But the miracles and the signs that he begins to present are causing people to lean in even closer and wonder at who he is. And so that's kind of where we pick up in verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. It's a really strange passage. But very important to set up before we're going to meet another man named Nicodemus next week. And some of you guys know where that, that story goes. If you don't, that's cool. You'll enjoy it next week. But the, the reality here is this is a setup. Jesus is here in this place. He's done these signs. He's done these wonders. And people are walking up going, who is this guy? They're believing in him. They're yelling, you're the Messiah. You're the Messiah. He's already changed water into wine, which was a messianic sign showing he would have an abundance of of wine and good things and these things that would happen in the Messianic kingdom, which is the picture in, in the Old Testament. But then he does this cleansing the temple. So he's going to have the zeal of the Messiah to, for his father's house and the worship of his father. And so there's this reality that they're like, yes, this is, this is the guy. Now he does these miracles and something about these miracles, something about these signs cause people to start flattering him. You got it. You're him. You're the Messiah. You're the, you're the Lord. We believe in you. We'll follow you anywhere. Kind of these statements. And you'd think Jesus would be like, okay, we're going to gather a giant crowd as big as we can, and we're going to show off who this is. It's going to be a worldwide movement under Jesus' name. But that's not how he does it. He literally, it says, Jesus did not on his part entrust himself to them, meaning these people who believed in him because of the signs that he did. He doesn't trust himself to them. In fact, what he does is he, he kind of just seemingly stands off in the distance from these brand new faiths. It's because Jesus knows when people really have trusted him. Jesus knows the difference between real trust and false trust, real belief and flattery. And I guess the best illustration of this is when I was a, a youth pastor, I, I can remember way back uh, multiple times, the, the equation worked like this. Cute, godly girl, teenage girl in the youth group meets cute, not so godly guy at school. And the two of them go, whoo, we like each other. Googly eyes happen. The magic works begin. And suddenly they want to date each other. But Good, cute, godly girl says, you can't date me unless you're a Christian. And bad, cute guy goes, whatever you say. Suddenly he's at church all the time. He's, he's walking the aisle every time you give an altar call. He wants to be discipled. And you're like, dude, you touch this girl, I'm going to kill you. You know, that's kind of the attitude we had as leaders. No, oh, no, this is awesome. I love Jesus. Until he got what he wanted. And then you never saw him again. There have been people plenty of times throughout history who have joined churches for the economic gain that they can have amongst a crowd of people because, hey, it's a Christian nation, or hey, this is a pretty large church. And we can know that Jesus knows the difference between when we come to a church and we profess faith because it's the cool thing to do versus when it's something real. He knows the difference of why we would go after Jesus for a miracle or a sign, even though that's not what it's about. Now, I find it fascinating that this is what Jesus is looking at. It's kind of like this beginning faith. He knows it's not been tested yet. It's not been pushed on yet. It may not be real. I'm not going to entrust myself to you guys. And yet he, it goes further than that. It goes deeper than that. 
because he was skeptical towards them about, about this stuff. Now, obviously, it's not wrong. I want to make it clear. It's not wrong to believe in Jesus because of the signs. In fact, that's the point of the book of John. This is the thesis statement of John. John's point, he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So it's not wrong to trust in Jesus over the proofs that he's given. So what Jesus is getting at here is, he's not going to entrust himself to us human beings for a very specific reason. What is this reason? What's going on here? Look at it again. Verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, these people, because he knew, in the, in the, 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 the Bible in, in the seats will read, all men. He knew all of humanity. He understood what they were like. He knew who they were. He he didn't need to, it wasn't a hasty journalization to him. He knew every single human's heart and he understood that needed no one to bear witness about man for he knew what was in man. That is a scary statement. Jesus, this is Jesus we're talking about. You know, Mr. Loving, Jesus, the guy who, who, he would root you on at your baseball game, right? Because he's your friend. No, he doesn't entrust himself to us. I don't trust you. Not giving you my, I'm not giving you my phone number, you know, kind of. I mean, it's almost like he's, he's taking a stance back. Why? What's up with this? Because of what is in man. What is it that's in us? What did he know? Straightforwardly, what we see is that Jesus knew that we as human beings were totally twisted toward evil. And he called and had these disciples and they would all abandon him. And these very people who were praising him to believing him would be the ones who would crucify him. And Jesus knew what was in human beings that were totally twisted. Where do I get this from? I get it from Jeremiah. Um, actually, I get it from the entire Bible. But, the, uh, but it's kind of focused in, in Jeremiah. And a very interesting passage you want. Let's turn to that passage because I want to show you this. And I want to show you it right there in the Bible. So Jeremiah chapter 17. You're going to go to the left quite a ways through a bunch of really weird looking names like uh, Malachi, the Italian prophet, and, and on down to Daniel. And then finally, you'll land at Jeremiah. And uh, Jeremiah is, is in an interesting context. Israel has divided into two kingdoms a few hundred years earlier earlier. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. Israel has been wiped out by Assyria about 200 years earlier. And now Judah remains. And Judah has been unfaithful to God. Assyria has now been wiped out. This empire that took away Israel by a group called the Babylonians. The Babylonians, this ancient empire, has risen up and has now surrounded Judah to take it over. And, And Jeremiah is walking around in town And he's yelling and screaming at everybody, listen, God's told me we're going to lose. So just pack your stuff up, go out to the Babylonians and surrender. There's no point in going through with this. The walls aren't going to help you. The king ain't going to help you. We can't trust each other. Let's go out there. Nobody listens to Jeremiah. They throw him in a cistern. They ignore him. They call him names. They burn his papers. I mean, whatever they can do to Jeremiah, they try to shut him down. He is an unsuccessful movement maker. Never, never, never starts a single thing. Nobody repents. 
and, and, and Jerusalem is destroyed. In the middle of one of his rants and conversations to try to get Israel, to, to get Judah to listen to him, we come to chapter 17 where the focus is on the sin of Judah. In fact, they say your sin is so clear, it's, it's engraved with a diamond-pointed pen on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. So it is welded into the heart, and it is written on the very things you'd be forgiven for. You aren't getting away with this. This is how bad this is. And so now he enters into this kind of poetry in verse 5. He says, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man. Jesus did not entrust himself to man, it says. Why? Because cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land called Temescal Canyon in the summer. Right? That's, that's the picture of what's going on. This is a dried up tumbleweed of a life when we trust in human strength. Trust in human technology. Trust in the human venture and spirit. When you trust in the human being, what do you get? Tumbleweeds. That's what you get. Now, I'm not saying humans aren't amazing. I'm not saying we don't do some incredible stuff. I mean, check this place out. Check out the United States. Check out the world. There's some beautiful, amazing inventions. I'm not saying that's bad. What I'm saying is that you don't trust it. Don't, don't, don't think technology is going to save you and figure out the problem. Don't think that these things are going to happen. What? Because it leads to a tumbleweed life. A dried up, broken off, brittle piece of thing that goes, just waiting for a big rig to knock it down. Blessed, however, is the man who trusts in the Lord, it says whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for the leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. I mean, it is strong, capable of going through things. This echoes Psalm 1, where it says, in all things, this person prospers. And the trust in the Lord brings us prosper in this life, but trust in man brings a tumbleweed life. Why? What's, what's the trick? What's the difference? And the answer is the Lord is faithful and human beings are not. Check it out. The answer comes in a very stark condition in verse 9. If you ever visited a doctor and they've told you you have cancer or something, that's a horrific thing to hear. This is worse. It says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Why do you trust the Lord? Because he gets the human heart. He knows everything. Why do you not trust man? Because something's really wrong. The heart is deceitful above what? All things. You mean more deceitful than Hitler? Hitler is a human. So there we go. How, how deceitful is the human heart? Let me put this. The Bible just leveled it at you in this way. You and I are more deceitful as human beings than the devil. The devil is the father of lies. We are more deceitful. Our hearts are above his deceit. That's why God had to say, you guys don't get to live forever. 
on this planet. We're going we're gonna to give you death as your punishment for sin because you're made in God's image. That means you have a vast capacity greater than the angels. And when we go wrong, it goes really, really wrong. And that's not something that we're comfortable with hearing. But that's exactly what it's saying. There is a problem here. The heart has become deceitful. It tricks you. You and I can't trust what we're feeling. Now, the heart in the, in the Hebrew is not just your, your feelings and your emotions. It includes that. It is the center control of your entire will and drive for life. It is where your identity derives. It is where everything that you do births. You can think about something and not engage it. But when it engages your heart and the heart starts pumping, the guts start moving and you start stepping, that's what it's talking about. And your heart and my heart is the most deceitful, deceiving thing in the universe, in heaven and hell and all things. And that's, that's hard to hear. But it's exactly why Jesus was a skeptic. I'm not so sure. I'm not going to trust myself to man. I don't want a tumbleweed life. I'm not going to trust myself because there's something sick. There's something wrong going on in those hearts. In fact, Jesus will describe this and pull it out to answer a question, an angel question in theology. I was sitting in my theology class and we love some of these questions your teachers would drop. And so the professor would just simply ask a simple question. Say, okay, here, I'm going to test your theology right now. Do you sin because you're a sinner? Or are you a sinner because you sin? And how you answer that question will say a lot about what your worldview is like. Do you sin... Because inside of you is this drive towards sin, this, this desire. In fact, you are already a sinner and therefore the actions that come out of you is sinful. Or are you a guy who sins and so now suddenly you're in the category of sinner? And that was the question. We would debate that in class. And the answer came when we reviewed several passages, beginning with Romans chapter 5. And Rome, in the book of Romans, is a treatise on, on the, the gospel of Jesus and how it sets us free. And so he begins the whole book in the most miserable manner, where he basically comes to the conclusion that human beings before God can do no good whatsoever in the sight of God. We can do good to each other. We can be kind to one another. We can do good for society. But in front of God, we do no good things that merit anything good in front of him. And that's where Paul kind of ends. And then he gets into who Jesus is and what he's done. And then he kind of connects. He says, we got to deal with the intensity of this factor because just as sin came into the world through one man, he gets into this. He wants to describe how the one sin of Adam is overcome by the one righteous act of Christ. And so he says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So he starts with this basic premise. Here's Adam and Eve. They've been created. They're good. They can't blame their environment. They're in paradise. It's not their parents' fault. They had God. It's definitely not their marriage's problem. She was made for him and he was made for her. And suddenly now you have this pure people and sin came into the world through one man. And that one sin brought death. 
And that death spread through sin. And all men sinned. What happens is this corruption that was original in Adam and Eve spread through the children. Give this enough time. By the end of this message, this will be green. And, and the filtration system and stuff, but you're not going to get it out. You're not going to reach in, scoop it out, pour it out, get it. No. Every human being has been tainted by sin. It's driven into our hearts. We have a desire and a love for it. Let me give you a simple example of why I think that's true. How many of you love Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? You love it. I mean, you literally watch it on Netflix right now. Okay, I didn't think so. You don't love it that much. Because let's face it, when I was two and three, dude, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was like crack. I want to be your neighbor. It's Mr. McFeely. You know, you're like, Mr. McFeely. That's so weird. Anyway, you're just like, you're watching this and you're just like, my dad would say, I watched this thing. I'd fall asleep. I didn't know what the kids were interested in. It's ridiculous. It's like watching the Wiggles. Oh, right? It's just, how can you handle it? But when you have kids, these are the, the loving sacrifices you make as a parent. And the reality is that we don't watch Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood because there's no tension. You watch the TV shows you watch and the movies you choose because the person, your protagonist, is pressing through and suddenly he could die. Suddenly there's evil. He's fighting evil or he's trying to fight the evil inside of him or he's trying to, and we're like, yeah, give me more of that. Oh, that's tense. Oh, that person could die in 30 seconds. That bus has to stay at 80 miles an hour. Carnage. Why the news is filled with the problems of the world is because when there's a problem and an evil, our heart condition, our setting is to go, ooh, I'm interested now. Tension in books are created by the fact that we are attracted to the problems and the sins, the twist toward evil, which is what sin is. It's a simple disposition, a twisting towards evil. In fact, Jesus will get so clearly involved in this. In the book of Mark, he will say, from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. His, his responses to the Pharisees who tried to claim, if you eat the right things and you keep the right laws, you won't sin. And he says, no, it's not about what you eat. It's not about what comes into a man. It's about what comes out is the problem. From within, out of the heart of a man comes evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder. Adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. I don't think any of us got through that list without going, ugh. Actually, I know none of us got out of that list without saying that. And many of us would walk out of that list going, yeah, I've made those mistakes. And yet, look at what Jesus' assessment is. All these what? Evil things come from within. Oh, is that really what the Greek says? Yes. The word is kakos. My kids love that word because it sounds like something else. But the reality, evil heart. The reality is that it means distilled evil. These are the evil things of the world and they come from within and they defile the person. They make us unfit to be before God because God can't stand sin. Do you know why? 
Because he's some kind of moral authority standing in the sky going, you can't do that, you can't do that. Well, yes, he is because he created it all. He made the forces of physics as well as he made the forces of the supernatural physics. Call them the laws of physics and the laws of spirituality. They're pretty much the same. Try to break a law of gravity and it's going to break you. You try to break the laws of morality and they will break you. And they continually break us. But even more, sin is an offense to God because he made us in his image. He made us to represent him. And you know what we do? We run around doing everything God doesn't want us to. God says, don't do that. Don't commit adultery. And you go, this ain't adultery. Yes, it is. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm not slandering that person. I'm telling the truth. God, you don't know what you're talking about. This isn't foolishness. I'm just having fun. You don't know what you're talking about. That's the essence of sin. It's the opportunity for us to tell God, he has no clue how life really works. We're going to tell God what is good, what is evil, what is right, what is wrong. We're going to do it our way. And from that is birth, that stain, that reality that our parents have given to us and we've adopted into, suddenly we can't stand before God because God says, you know what? You're not going to misrepresent me. I mean, who of us here really like our identity stolen and used for horrific reasons or even minorly not so bad reasons like buying stuff at a Circle K or whatever? Yet God is very clearly upset at the smallest and the greatest things that misrepresent him. And so we're to be judged. And we go, but, but really, it comes from the world, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's the world out there, we tell ourselves as Christians, that stain us. So if we just stay away and we don't get involved in those things, we'll be pure, except for the fact that temptation comes from within too. James 1 says, let no one say when he's tempted, I mean tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, but he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Look, I am not tempted to steal money. That's not my temptation. I have walked through Home Depot on Christmas, looked at the floor, and saw a $50 bill just sitting there by the paint counter. And I'm like, I picked it up and immediately I went, this is Christmas. Somebody lost 50 bucks. That stinks. I went over and I turned it in and they said, hey, if it's not, um, it's not we'll, we'll let people know, but if nobody gets it for a couple hours, um, we have to give it to you. And I'm like, okay. Dear Lord, let two hours go by. I'm just kidding. <laughs> And two hours went by, and I did get that. But it was, if money's just sitting out there, it's not like I'm going I'm to take that and slide it in my pocket. Nobody's, no, no. I'm not usually tempted by just random money sitting around to steal or, or random opportunities. That's the, but you put other things in front of my life. You put a bad scenario where I get to judge somebody, and it gets easier. Because what's going on is while the interior for me is not tempted by this exterior thing, some of you, you are. It's a temptation to grab that thing because nobody will know. Because inside of you is a bend towards evil. Is a, is a, shall I say, an identity that leans us to actions 
that are against what God has said. What we're struggling with in America is trying to figure out what in the world is evil anymore because we, we disagree with God. We disagree with Jesus about this. We really don't believe that we are actually sinful at the interior. You know why I know that? Because we were all born and raised in the same culture and we were all born and raised with the same children's music. You say, what? Hold with me for a second. See if you can catch this. When you wish upon a star makes no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires shall come to you. It's like, that's how it should be saying. <laughs> because if your heart is wicked and you're wishing on a star and it's the most deceitful, evil thing in the universe, be afraid. Be very afraid. But no, 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 children are innocent. Always let your conscience be your guide. Really? Even if it's broken? Yeah! Because I got no strings to hold me down to make me afraid. Is that a cultural reality? I've got strings and now I'm free. There are no strings on me. Oh, let's just modernize the song. After you've been told to hold it in all your life, don't feel, don't think, let it go, let it go. Don't hold it back anymore. Is anybody else frightened by this little litany of songs? <laughs> because what happens when we let it go is somebody pulls the gun and shoots a nightclub. Instead of thinking that this is a moral evil that ought not to be done regardless. When we let it go, we run after every passion our heart points us after. And if it runs us into problems, we say, something must have gone wrong. Because it wasn't me. I'm good. We are all drinking of the water of a man named Rousseau. You haven't heard of Jean-Jacques Rousseau? You need to know who Jean-Jacques Rousseau is. He was a French Enlightenment thinker who lived as a bohemian radical who hated the French Revolution. He actually started the French Revolution in a lot of ways. Hated the upper tiers of French aristocracy. And in his desire to fight society, he came to the conclusion in his philosophy that mankind, if stripped of all its accoutrements, is at his essence good and innocent. It is society that corrupts you. And so humanity grabbed hold of this and his vision was we can create a good society born out of the goodness of human hearts that therefore we will not be corrupted by the evil concepts of religion in the past, of the evil concepts of these warrior age. And if we just educate the children right, Dewey said, you will have good children and good people. And so we educate our children rightly and we argue over what education will bring about the good because we don't want the taint getting on the kids. That's influenced the church. We don't go near the taint of the world because it might rub off on us. It's in us. It's in this room. It floats amongst us causing problems. No, 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 no. Hey, we're innocent. We're good. Just, just let the children be. If we can get them out of their horrible economic blight and situation and make sure those rich people would stop pressing their problems on this economic situation, we could have a good culture and society, said Marx. 
No, no, no. If we could just evolve correctly and make sure the good that is in the right children evolves into the superhumans, as Nietzsche said, and the Nazis lived out, then we will have the good society. All of it is born conservative, liberal, political, from the belief that humanity is good. If we just order each other rightly, we will be good people. We will be good in economics. We will be good with our economics. Yeah, we will produce amazing technology that we turn to blow each other up with. That we use to infuse each other with disease. The problem is not with whether we're educated well enough. The problem is not with whether or not we've read enough books. The problem is not whether or not the white man pushes down the brown man. The problem is not in these places that we have these things. In fact, what you will hear over the next week with this situation in Orlando is that it will be blamed not on a man who has made moral choices, but on whatever group he's associated with. Or it's because he's mentally disturbed and disabled in in their terminology that he should have just gotten therapy. That's why he does it because no person in their right mind does evil. Yeah, right. Do you hear how huge this is today? Why was Jesus a skeptic? Because he knew what was in man. To drop our excuses and realize the truth that we're totally sinful is something we have to do. To survive in this culture, to realize human evil and sin comes from within is the only way to do it because it affects everything, guys. If we don't drop our excuses, we're going to believe this thought and it affects evangelism. One of the hardest things to do in evangelism is to show somebody their need. We wait for their lives to fall apart because somehow then they know something went wrong instead of realizing, no, we are wrong before God and need Christ to save us. It's affected missions to the point where um, Kevin Kane was at a missions night where he preached and some guy came up to him after he told him that we need to get the gospel to nations that don't have never heard it. The guy said, why would you mess up their innocence by bringing in your Western ideas? As if they weren't eating each other because they were cannibals that he was talking about. And in this reality, we can have all these excuses. Well, I'm not really that bad course you're not. But we all come from the same water. Well, if we're all from the same water, who cares then? We got to be what we are. God cares. And he's called it something he's going to condemn. Oh, somebody else made me do it. No. The sole responsibility for the decisions that you've made in your life For the problems that are occurring in your heart and your life now that have birthed from your decisions come from you. Because you can point at a hundred other people who have had similar scenarios and chosen different paths. And until we're ready to own our sin and realize that we're sinful, a few things aren't going to be realized. And that is simply this, that we got a problem that needs a great solution because you can't filter it out. In fact, somebody told me during service, you can filter this out, but there's only one filter in the whole world that'll do it. That'll filter the dye out of water. I found that fascinating. Here's why I want to challenge us as Olive Branch to accept this truth. Number one, it'll help you see your sin better. 
and I'll help you see how big your God is. Back to my theology class, one of the things, the first things I was ever taught in my, in my sanctification course was the longer you walk as a Christian, the greater your sin will feel. You're thinking, no, really? Yeah, it gets worse. Because the longer you walk as a Christian, the greater you realize that sin is and the heavier it feels on your back. And she goes, so, so that means we should beat ourselves up? No, actually, and then he says, and so greater the cross looms over our sin and how great is his grace. You see, the longer you walk as a Christian, the better you understand your sin, the better you understand God's grace, the more you understand God's grace, you see his love, the more it fuels your worship when you come in this place and when you act in this world and gives you the passion to love other people. Because when you see how forgiven you are, it blows you away. I mean, stop and think about it. What would your life have been like without Jesus? I've done that. And that's scary. How great should our praise be? Second, the reason we need to really pull this in and hear me is because it'll get rid of legalism. Guys, there is no rules that are going to govern your kiddos' hearts. There's no rules that are going to govern your hearts. Take away all the guns, we'll use pencils. Give everybody guns and it'll still be bad. I don't care if you, you legalize everything or when you eliminate everything. The human heart is not a political thing. And no president, governor, legislature, church member, leader, or program religiously or politically can release the evil of the, or contain the evil of the human heart, guys. The answer is not found there and it will release you from trying to be legalistic. It will release you from trying to be religious. It will release you from these things and it will lead you right back to Jesus at the cross and walking with him. Know your sin because it ultimately also leads away from judgment. You don't know your sin until it's led you to compassion. How do we love those who are radically different from us politically, theologically, or otherwise, except that we realize it's not all the good people hanging out in church together. It's all the people that deserved hell and realized it, going out to reach all the people who deserved hell and don't realize it yet, so we can just wake each other up so that we can all not go to hell because Jesus Christ has given us a great grace. It's not about how good we are. And so we can have massive compassion towards all who are bound up in sin. Don't let it lead you to judgmentalism. Let it lead you to compassion. Not an easy topic to think on, but extremely poignant, especially as we get into John chapter 3, where the solution will be presented. So I want you to do, as we pray now and we get into this worship, is allow yourself to contemplate that sin just for a minute so that you can... Let it fuel your worship as we go from here. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to be confronted with the reason your son wouldn't trust us. And that we know that even though he didn't trust us, he still loved us. And now you've, you've entrusted us with your gospel. You've entrusted us with many things because you live in us and you walk with us. And God, thank you for that great grace and God, I pray that you would just 
help any of those who are here today and that feel overwhelmed by the sense of their own sin and God, that healthy sense of that guilt that ought to be there. And God, help us hear the message of your grace then. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.